0: Thank you, praise team. Well, happy Mother's Day. We're pausing today in our regular 2 Peter and Ecclesiastes preaching for a special Mother's Day message. Though Of course, there will be spiritual food for all of us today, mother or not. Our text this morning is a short and familiar one, but one that is so important for each of us to hear and take to heart today. We're actually going to Read the text, and then I'll pray and proceed with the sermon. Open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, and we're looking at verses 38 to 42 today. If you're using the Pew Bible, that's page 1035. 1035. Let's listen to the Word of God, the Word of Christ, from Luke 10, verses 38 to 42. Now, as they were traveling along, he, that is Jesus, entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. She came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Let's pray. Lord, open your word to us this day. Teach us, Lord Christ. May I be your mouthpiece. Help me to explain clearly your word. In spirit, work in the hearts so that we are transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, even though it is Mother's Day, I'm going to risk opening this sermon with a story from a traditionally masculine field, and that is the field of sports, and specifically American football. One of the greatest, if not the greatest, American football coach ever was Vince Lombardi. He was coach of the Green Bay Packers in the 1960s, also briefly the Washington Redskins, and he led his teams to winning records every season and to five championship wins in seven years, including the first two Super Bowl victories ever. When the Super Bowl started, he won the first two games. Even today, the trophy given to the winning team at the Super Bowl is named after this coach. But what made... Vince Lombardi, so great. What was the primary ingredient to his success? Surprisingly, the answer is not brilliant strategy or new and unconventional techniques. Rather, it was a commitment to mastering the fundamentals. In just his second season as the Packers coach, Lombardi led his team to the NFL's 1960 championship game against the Philadelphia Eagles. Packers had played well in the game, and they were winning going into the fourth quarter, but then they lost in the final few minutes because they just couldn't score even though, even though they were a few yards away from the end zone. It was a demoralizing defeat. To be so close, but still to fail. What went wrong? How would the team pick up the pieces again for the next year? When summer training camp came around, Coach Lombardi's idea was to get back to basics. He decided he would make no assumptions about what the players knew or remembered from the previous year. And he famously began the training camp with these words to his players after holding up a certain object. Gentlemen... This is a football. And Lombardi trained his team with this mindset. Back to the beginning. He went over with each player the basics, how to block, how to tackle. Went back to page one in the playbook to make sure each player knew what they were supposed to do in the plays that the team would execute. Some of the players initially found this approach amusing. But as the training camp proceeded, the team began to excel more and more at all the little skills that other teams around the league took for granted. And the reorientation paid off, for in the 1961 season, just the next year, not only did the Packers make it to the championship game again, but this time they won it, 37-0. to I bring up Vince Lombardi this morning because this kind of back-to-basics mindset is also very important for us as Christians. After all, we also face many difficulties and frustrations and even defeats in the Christian life. We sometimes are asking ourselves, why do I always feel so stressed, so angry, so worried, even when I try to serve God? Why do I seem to keep yielding to the same sins again and again? Why do my love and zeal for the Lord feel so cold? Is there some secret, some secret that I'm missing? Is there some new teaching or technique that I can add to my life so that I can find a breakthrough? Well, the answer is, there is no secret except to go back to basics. Remember what it means to be a Christian and, once again, sit at the Lord's feet to love and to learn from Him. That's what today's text is all about. Recapturing the one thing that is necessary in the Christian life. That's the sermon title, One Thing is Necessary. As we look at our text, short text, We can state the main idea of the passage in this way. In Luke 10, 38 to 42, God teaches us that devoted discipleship comes before happy service. You want to happily serve Christ? You must get back to basics. Realize that devoted discipleship under Christ is what enables happy service for Christ. Now, just a brief word about the context. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is proceeding towards Jerusalem. He has his mind set on the cross, but he's still taking time to train his disciples. And the theme that seems to emerge from this chapter is the connection between loving God and serving God. In the beginning of the chapter, Jesus sends 70 of his disciples out on some ministry mission. They come back. And they're so excited about what they've accomplished for Jesus. They say, even the demons are subject to us in your name. But Jesus says to them, don't rejoice in this. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice in your accomplished service. Rejoice in the fact that you are beloved by God. And then as you proceed on in the passage, you have this exchange with Jesus and a self-righteous expert in the law man asks Jesus what the most important commands in the law are. Jesus directs him back to the scriptures. And the man admits the most important commands are to love God with all your heart and then love your neighbor as yourself. That was a good answer. And then when the man said, Ah, but loving my neighbors, who's the deserving neighbor? And that's when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. He says, you're asking the wrong question about who deserves your loving service. Actually, what God calls you to do is to be a good neighbor to anyone in need because the Lord has loved you. So there's this, as I say, this connection, this theme of service to Christ comes after and only through love for Christ. And you're going to see that that same theme is really evident in our passage Now, for this short narrative, we're going to organize the account under three headings. And the headings I've chosen, they focus on particular characters highlighted as the plot unfolds. And we see our first one in the first mini-section, verses 38 to 39. Who's the first highlighted character? Number one, the devoted disciple. Number one, the devoted disciple. Look at those two verses again. Now, as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him. Into her home. She had a sister called Mary, who was seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. Verse 38 begins pretty innocuously enough. We learn that Jesus and his traveling group of disciples have entered another village. Our author Luke doesn't name the village here, but this is probably the village of Bethany, just east of Jerusalem. And the reason I say it's probably Bethany is because of the information the Apostle John gives us in John 11, where he mentions that Bethany is where Martha, Mary, and their brother Lazarus lived. Jesus was a friend of this family. He loved the three of them and ministered to each of them personally. They, in turn, loved the Lord. They believed in him. They believed in his word, and they were happy to offer him a place to stay. Remember, Jesus is a traveling preacher. doesn't have a permanent place to lay his head So he relied on this kind of hospitality. Because of his various trips to Jerusalem, Jesus often stayed in this nearby town, this village of Bethany. So he often got to see his friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now Luke here is describing one of these stays. It's probably not the first time he's seen this family, and neither is it the last time. There's a different set of circumstances when Jesus is on his final approach to Jerusalem. So it's one of those times in between. But Jesus comes to visit his friends as he ministers in this city. Now notice here that Martha, it says, welcomed Jesus into her home. Now this was a righteous act, and hospitality was particularly important at that time. But why does it say Martha? Martha welcomed him, and not Lazarus. Well, we can't say for sure. But it may be, probably is, that Martha was the oldest of the three siblings. And therefore, she took a prominent and mother-like role for the family. She's the one who has the home and opens it up. As Lazarus is not particularly important in this story, he's not mentioned. So we're introduced to Martha in verse 38. But the one who really catches our attention is the second character introduced in verse 39. And that's Mary. Why should she grab our attention? It's because of what she does. What she's doing. We're told in verse 39 that she is, Mary is, sitting at the Lord's feet and listening to his word. Now you might ask, well, what's so remarkable about that? So she sat at his feet. So what? Well, not only does sitting at someone's feet very obviously indicate a humility and a deference to the one that you were seated before, because you're literally lower than them at their feet, But this description, to sit at someone's feet, it meant something in that culture. This description and this posture. To sit at someone's feet was understood as to take the position of a disciple. Of a committed learner or follower of someone else. And we see this in another place. In Acts 22, verse 3. Acts 22, 3, Paul is defending himself before a pretty bloodthirsty mob in Jerusalem. And he's trying to explain his origins and his actions. And he mentions that, hey, everybody, I just want you to know, I was educated under Gamaliel. And Gamaliel was a famous rabbi at that time. Now, Acts 22, three in the New American Standard Translation, it says, educated under Gamaliel. And that's a good translation. That is the sense. But a literal translation of that phrase is educated at the feet of Gamaliel. In other words, Paul says, Gamaliel was my master and I was his student. I sat at his feet, even literally, and I sought to absorb everything that my teacher had to say. Same idea is being expressed here in Luke 10.39 about Mary and Jesus. Jesus. Young Mary voluntarily takes up a position as a humble learner before the great teacher. And not just a great teacher, even the Lord. Notice it's not the name Jesus used in our passage. It's the Lord. Mary evidently has come to the same realization about Jesus as others of his disciples have. She no doubt would say, as Peter did to Jesus in Matthew 16, 16, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. And she would also echo what Peter says to Jesus in John 6.89. You have words of eternal life. She understands who Jesus is. She understands the value of his words, and so she wants to be his follower. She seats, therefore, and orients herself to pay close attention to, as Luke says in Luke 4.22, all the gracious words falling from his lips. Mary takes up the posture of a devoted disciple, which she ought because of who Jesus is and which really we ought as well. But perhaps more remarkable than the fact that Mary takes up this posture is the fact that Jesus allows her to do so. And Jesus, as we'll see in the later verses, he not only allows this, but he welcomes this and insists that no one take Mary away from this position. Now, why is that particularly noteworthy? Because many people at the time, including some Jewish rabbis, had a very low view of women. They looked down on women. They saw them as spiritually inferior, as deviant, untrustworthy, and incapable. One ancient rabbi proclaimed, better to burn the Torah... That's the first five books of the Bible. Better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. Now, not every rabbi felt that way. There were some rabbis and Jews who had a high and respectful view of women. Nevertheless, for Jesus to so openly welcome a woman disciple and to quite literally give her a front row seat to his teaching, that would have raised more than a few eyebrows. Actually, this fact fits well into Luke's overall purpose in writing his gospel record. Fundamentally, Luke, a Gentile, he writes this whole book to show that Jesus is the Savior of all mankind, Jew and Gentile, man and woman. Thus, if you go through the gospel of Luke, you will notice that he highlights more than The other gospel writers do the many times that Jesus goes out of his way to minister to Gentiles and women. And Luke actually is the only one who gives us this record about this particular event with Mary, Martha, and Jesus. So in the first part of our text, we see this beautiful display of Mary's regard for the Lord and the Lord's regard for Mary Mary takes up the position of a devoted disciple and Jesus gladly receives her to that position and speaks to her his amazing and life-giving word. But not as all happy and wonderful in this scene. for we soon learn that there is trouble brewing in the kitchen. And we arrive at our second heading and our second highlighted character in verse 40. Number two, the unhappy servant. Number two, the unhappy servant. Verse 40 says, But Martha was distracted with all her preparations. And she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. Can you relate to this scene at all? You're trying to do what's right some situation in your life. You're trying to serve God and others. Maybe you're looking to do something for your children. But as you start to do it, your heart starts to murmur. And your grumbling heart soon, manif- soon manifests in actual words of grumbling to others. Has it ever happened to you? I think we've all been where Martha is right now in this text. And that's helpful because that helps us understand that Martha is not the villain here. She's not the bad woman while Mary's the good woman. Martha is a good woman too. She loves and believes in the Lord. Go to John 11. You see this beautiful profession of faith in Christ even when her brother dies. Even here, she's the one welcoming Jesus in righteous hospitality. Even Martha's desire to serve and prepare a proper meal for Jesus and the others with him, it is a good thing. However, even good things can turn bad when they are done with the wrong attitude and with improper priority. Martha really falls into two traps, the same kinds that we easily do. On the one hand, she makes too much of a secondary thing. And on the other hand, she makes too little of a primary thing. Notice how it says, Martha was distracted with all her preparations. Word translated distracted here, and that's a good translation. It literally means to be pulled or dragged away. Martha's heart is being pulled really in various directions, as she has many different concerns as to how she can show proper hospitality to Jesus. Now, we aren't given details in the text as to what, if any, division of responsibilities Martha and Mary had already decided between themselves. Did Martha say, as Jesus arrived, or shortly before, okay, Mary, you go into the main room and make sure Jesus has all he needs while I take care of the meal preparation"? We often do that when people come over, right? We divvy up responsibilities like that. Did that happen? Maybe. Or were the responses of the two women more spontaneous? Mary says, Oh, Jesus is here. I better go sit and listen. While Martha says, Oh, Jesus is here. I better get busy with much service. We don't know what the setup was. But something we can say, though, especially in light of Jesus' later response is that Martha's overburdening, her being distracted, was unnecessary and self-generated. It's not that serving Jesus and preparing the meal was so difficult that Martha couldn't do it by herself. It's that preparing the meal the way that Martha felt was necessary turned out to be too much for her. She was finding it hard to reach her own self-devised standard of what the proper meal would look like. And again, we can sympathize, can't we? If someone really important showed up at your house after a long day's journey, would you want to serve up three-day-old leftovers on paper plates? I think I got something in the fridge. Or would you not rather serve your best meal, fresh and on your finest china? And clean the house too and buy flowers and arrange the lights in just the right way. Isn't that what we'd naturally be inclined to do? Again, it's not wrong that Martha wanted to prepare something nice for Jesus. But she made a good and non-essential thing into an essential thing. She felt that if she couldn't present to Jesus the perfect meal, if she didn't Accomplish hospitality in just the way that she had envisioned, then all was lost, and Martha was a failure. Oh, I can never show my face to Jesus again. You can, you can leave now, Jesus. I'm, I'm so sorry. Martha also forgot that Jesus is much more interested in what he can give us than what any of us can give him. Remember that section in john 4 where jesus is talking to the samaritan woman at the well he asks her for a drink and when she says to him hey what why do you ask me for a drink i mean you're a jew and i'm a samaritan woman doesn't make any sense jesus replies to her in a very poignant way he says if you knew the gift of god and he who it is that asks you you would have asked him for the water that he gives living water that satisfies thirst forever and wells up to eternal life. Jesus is interested in giving us what he has to offer, more than what we can give him. And what was it that Jesus was offering Martha in this scene? What is it the thing that he was offering her, but that she wasn't really willing to receive? She considered it good, but not so essential. Only this, Jesus himself, the presence, companionship, and love of the Son of God. Even the life-giving word and wisdom of God. Was this not a valuable thing? Was this not a precious thing? Jesus was prepared to give this all to Martha and Mary and to anyone there who wanted it. But Martha was too busy to receive it. Martha didn't realize it, but what she was really communicating to the Lord by getting carried away with all her good service and meal preparation was, thanks for coming by, Jesus, but I don't have time for you yourself. I'm too busy doing all the burdensome service that you require. Now, when you communicate something like that to Christ, I think you can understand that does not honor Him. But it does often result in unhappy service. Oh, you'll serve all right, but you won't be happy in it. And it won't honor the Lord. So before we go on, we should pause and ask ourselves, what does my life communicate to Jesus? Am I so caught up in good but non-essential or less essential things that I don't have time to be discipled by the Lord himself. Do I see Jesus as the burden? Or rather, do I lay aside unnecessary burdens so that I can have Jesus? Martha's agitated mind leads to angry action. Notice in verse 40 how Martha accuses her sister... Jesus, look, my sister has left me to do all the meal preparation and hospitality work alone. How inconsiderate is that? How selfish of a younger sister. After all I do for her, poor me, I'm left to do this good work alone. You ever said something like that in your heart or even out loud? You've come up with your own vision of what needs to happen in a situation and there are some good things that Christ has even called you to do. But you have this vision of what ought to happen and then when others don't help you achieve that vision or they don't help you to the extent that you think that they need to help you, what do you do? You resent them. You complain about them. You might even rebuke them while you pity yourself. And notice that Martha's accusation is not only against her sister, but also against Christ. She says, Lord, do you not care? Something implied in that, isn't there? Lord Jesus, you see what's going on in here. You can see and hear me working hard in the kitchen while Mary just sits at your feet. Don't you see what's wrong with this picture? Then why haven't you intervened? Could it be that you just don't care? This looks like somebody who doesn't care. Don't you love me, Jesus? Especially when I'm working so hard for you. Why would you let me be left alone? Martha gives Jesus a chance to redeem himself. She suggests, if you really do care about me, Jesus, then help me achieve my vision of what should happen here. Tell Mary to get back into the kitchen and help me. Again, can't we do the same thing with God? When life's not going right, when ministry's getting frustrating, when we have this great and good vision of what we'd like to accomplish for God, but it's just not coming together, we not only blame others, but we also question God's love and care for us. Surely, God, if you cared, you wouldn't let this happen. You would have given me more help. After all, I'm doing all of this for you. Why is it not working? You may remember that this isn't the only time somebody has questioned the Lord's care. Actually, with this precise phrase. Twelve disciples raised the same complaint against Jesus when they were caught in a dangerous storm at sea while Jesus, exhausted after a long day's ministry, slept in the boat. They woke Jesus, and Mark 4.38 records their words. Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Look at the storm. Look at this difficulty. We've been following you. We're trying to do what's right here. But we're in a storm, and you haven't done anything about it. Could it be that you just don't care about us? Our hearts can say the same thing to God. But we can also add more, like Mar- er, Martha does here. Jesus, I'll forgive you if you just set everything right, right now. Do what I think is necessary. Do what I want you to do. And really, this is what you ought to do here. I know. If you just do that, then I'll believe in your love again and I'll trust you. Do what I want and I'll trust you. We can already see a kind of big contrast between the attitudes of these two women, can't we? Mary sits to listen to Christ. Martha stands to tell Christ what to do. Mary regards Christ with reverence. Martha regards Christ with suspicion. Now again, Martha's not evil but her heart has strayed to act in an evil, proud, and ultimately foolish way. She regarded the lesser things as essential things, and she regarded the essential thing as something unimportant. How does Jesus respond to Martha? We've seen the devoted disciple. We've seen the unhappy servant. Now let's look at the last two verses in our last heading and highlighted character. Number three, the compassionate teacher. The compassionate teacher. Look at verses 41 and 42. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. This is such an amazingly gentle answer from the Lord. Not only demonstrates his love for Martha, but for Mary too. Even while Martha is questioning that same love, she gets a loving response. For consider how Jesus might have responded to Martha. After all, she just interrupted Jesus, the great teacher, in the middle of his teaching. And she criticized and dishonored Jesus in front of all his disciples. She even publicly rebuked her sister when her sister had done nothing wrong. So how might Jesus have justly responded to Martha? Martha, how dare you? How dare you interrupt my life-giving teaching with your petty complaint? You would not only rebuke your righteous sister... But you would also rebuke me, your righteous Lord? Martha, is your heart not proud, self-righteous, and full of bitterness? Woman, you need to repent. But that is not the way our Savior responds. That is not the way the Good Shepherd speaks to those he loves. And really, it shouldn't be our way either. Look at how Jesus begins. He says, Martha, Martha. Now, generally, it's a sign that a rebuke is coming if Jesus has to say your name twice. It's kind of like when your mom or your dad says your middle name in addition to your first name when they're calling you. David Andrew? Hmm, I think I'm in trouble. We can see this same technique used in other places even from Jesus. Luke thirteen, thirty four, Jesus says, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. Jerusalem, you're in the wrong. Or Luke twenty-two, thirty-one, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Uh, you've got a failure coming up, Simon. But what's evident in these other examples, and even here is not only by saying the name twice, Jesus indicating that he will chide Martha, but that he still loves her. There's a tenderness and a care communicated in the repetition of the name in this way. Martha, Martha, I love you. And I hear you. But I must tell you, you've understood this situation all wrong. Notice how Jesus correctly diagnoses Martha's problem. He tells her, you are worried and bothered about so many things. Or to say it another way, you are unduly concerned and troubled about many things that are good but ultimately are not necessary. Or not as necessary. You have Multiplied concerns for yourself according to your own thought of what is needful. So, it's not surprising that you now feel overwhelmed. Understand, my, my dear sister, that I didn't overburden you, and neither did Mary. Really, you did this to yourself. Jesus then reminds her, but only one thing is necessary. Now in saying this, it's not that Jesus is saying that a meal for him is totally unnecessary. Ah, Forget the meal. We don't need that. Nor is he saying that any service or obedience to him at all is unnecessary. No, as you can just glance at the rest of Luke chapter 10 and many other places in the scriptures to see that in a certain sense, service to Christ is necessary for the Christian. Obedience to Jesus is the expected result. Walking in holiness, walking in love of others, it is the expected result of becoming a true disciple of Jesus. It's not saying it has no place. But, in prioritizing the Christian life, one thing must come before and be present in everything else. This priority needs to be so obvious that it's like it's the one and only necessary thing. And Jesus clarifies what that necessary thing is a little bit for us with the rest of his statement, finishing out verse verse 22. For Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. What is the one necessary thing? It is the same as the good part or the good portion that Mary chose for herself, namely, sitting at the feet of Jesus. It's devoted discipleship. It's simply knowing, loving, and learning from the Lord. And isn't this the same prioritized portion that we heard earlier? In this service, when Khalif read from Psalm twenty-seven? That's David speaking in that Psalm, and he had the same heart. Psalm 27 4, David says, One thing I have asked from the Lord, that is Yahweh. Then I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life to behold the beauty of Yahweh, and to meditate in his temple. That's my priority. Or verse 8, same psalm. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Yahweh, I shall seek. And then also verse 11. Teach me your way, O Yahweh, and lead me in a level path because of my foes. Mary got it. David got it. And we could go to a bunch of other scriptures for the same concepts to be reinforced. I'll give you a few. Psalm 16.5, also from David. Psalm 16.5, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. You're my main part. You're my priority, God. Or John 17.3. I quote this to you all the time. Maybe you're sick of it, but it is such a great text. I want you to hear it again. John 17.3, Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent and then jeremiah 15:16 here's just one other example jeremiah 15:16 jeremiah says to god your words were found and i ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart for i have been called by your name o yahweh god of hosts Brothers and sisters, Christianity is not merely some wise philosophy to follow, nor is it a set of rules to keep or a service list to do. It is, first and foremost, a relationship with God, with the Creator, with the Holy Lord, with the loving Savior, with Jesus Christ. Martha forgot this one necessary thing. She neglected the relationship for the sake of service. But all the service in the world does not compare to simply knowing and loving Christ. Devoted discipleship under Christ must come before and be central in all the service to Christ. Because of this fact. Jesus was insistent with Martha that Mary's good portion would not be taken away from her. Not under Jesus' watch. Really, rather than Mary going to help Martha, Martha ought to have come and sit with Mary at Jesus' feet. We'll get to the meal later. Come, sit. You know what I find really interesting? This proper priority demonstrated by Mary here, to know, to love, to learn from Jesus. It's seen again in Mary in another event that's captured by three of the Gospels. Interesting, Luke doesn't record this one, but in John 12, to 8, Matthew 26, verses 6 to 13, and Mark 14, verses 3 to 9, they all record Jesus's final stay at Bethany. And this is right before he's crucified. This time, Jesus is not at Martha's home, but is at the home of a man named Simon, who's a former leper. But Martha is there, and she's serving once again, though not complaining this time. Lazarus is also there, and Mary. But what Mary does is so significant. Mary comes in with a costly alabaster vial of nard perfume. She breaks the vial and pours the perfume over Jesus even on his feet. And she wipes his feet with her hair. It's an extraordinary expression of her love and devotion and worship to Jesus. But what is the reaction of the other people present there? What is the reaction of Jesus' own disciples led by Judas Iscariot? It is to rebuke her. They rebuke her for her Incredible financial waste. Why this waste when this perfume could have been sold for more than a year's wages, more than 300 denarii, and the proceeds given to the poor. Does that situation ring a bell? Isn't it the exact same thing we see in Luke 10? Mary is rebuked for her worship because she's not engaging in service. Think of all the people we could have served if you hadn't wasted your perfume like that. But what's Jesus' response in this later event? It's just like the response we see in our text. I'll give you Mark's version of Jesus' response. Mark 14, verses 6 to 7. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me you always have the poor with you and whenever you wish you can do good to them but you do not always have me. I say again, Jesus is not anti-service. There are many good causes in which we Christians should be engaged. We should care about serving our spouses, our parents, our children, our church, our nation. We should be committed to making disciples and for fighting for sound doctrine. But what must come before and fill all of that service? It must be sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping and listening to him. Devoted discipleship comes before happy service. Now, from these two passages, understand that taking this position, it will frequently be misunderstood, even maligned by others, including Christians, who will accuse you by neglecting what they think is your necessary service. They will accuse you of being lazy, being cowardly, and being unloving. If you really loved others, what are you doing here? But this is the position that Jesus commends in Mary, and really commands of us. In fact, Jesus is so pleased with Mary's devotion, as noted in this other passage, in this later event, that he declares in that same setting, wherever my gospel is preached, the story of what she has done for me will be proclaimed also. You want to criticize her? I want to honor her. And the same is really true for us. So let's ask now, how's your relationship with the Lord? Have you, first of all, become his devoted disciple by faith and repentance? You've understood that you don't meet God's perfect standard. You fall under his just penalty against sin because you've been a rebel just like everyone else. You've been a proud rebel committed to your own way, and you've inherited the wages of your sin, which is death forever, punishment in hell. You understand that. But you also understand that God's provided a way of rescue and the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if you take Him as your Lord and Savior, you will not suffer the wrath of God, but you will instead inherit life with Christ, with Him, forever. Have you become His devoted disciple in that way? If you haven't, you need to. The invitation is open. You don't know how much time you have. But if you have, if you've committed to follow Jesus as a devoted disciple, and I think most people here would say that they have, do you live like it? Is it your priority to spend time with your Lord, to get to know Him, to listen to His Word? Do you have a growing affection for Christ regardless of how well your life circumstances are going? And before you look to feed others with the grace of Christ, oh, I've got to serve, I've got to serve. Before you look to do that, are you feeding yourself on Christ? Or like Martha, have you gotten distracted? Has something pulled you away from Christ? Is it many things, even millions of unnecessary or good but less necessary things? Are you so caught up in your work or raising your kids that you do not have time for Christ? Has a political or social cause taken over your life? Taken over your thoughts and conversation? Of course, you know, everybody wants to enlist you today in their cause. Some of them are good, but has it taken you over? Do you have even a vision for the church or some ministry. You have some good ministry that you're involved in or want to be involved in and you've committed yourself to that. But you're more committed to that than to actually knowing God and loving Christ. Now brethren, I know it's easy to fall into these things. I know it's so easy to drift and that's why God gave us this passage. He speaks to us today, reminding us that his ways are different from our ways. He will always provide what we truly need in the situation, even where we're committed to good things that don't work out. It's okay. God is in control. He knows what we need, and what we need most of all, and what he's reminding us in a very clear way today, is to just sit at his feet, To love and learn from Christ. He's calling each of you today. Your Lord, the Lord, is speaking to each of you today from this passage and saying, Come, come again, sit at my feet, learn from me, love me, and then go serve. Now you might be asking, But Jesus isn't here anymore. How can I sit at the Lord's feet today as a disciple? Here's where I need to pull something like a Vince Lombardi and just remind you, ladies and gentlemen, this is how you sit at the Lord's feet. It's the word of Christ. It still exists. We have it in this today. So read this. study this. Talk with one another and others about this. Sing the truths of this. Pray according to this. This is how you sit at the Lord's feet. This is the word of Christ. It's how God has chosen to show himself to us today. You want to meet with God. You want to encounter God. It, it's his word. That's the way you do so. Now, some of you might be hearing that and be like, okay, I got to add the word. Another thing, you know, another burden. I just have to check off another thing to do. No. No, that is the wrong way to think about it. Don't approach the Word like it's another task to check off or just an ammunition silo that you can stock up on so that you can win all those theological debates with your brethren. That is not the way to approach the Word because it's not the way to approach Christ. Approach Christ to get to know Him, to love Him, and to... Learn his way. That's the way you should go to his scripture. Read it. Read it regularly as a devoted disciple. And you don't have to be a trained scholar to benefit from and enjoy this book. Just be a devoted disciple. Make this your food because it is your necessary food. It is your necessary spiritual food. It is the food of Christ. You need to feed more on Christ, and he reveals himself to you via his word. But someone will say, but I'm so busy. How can I have any time for the word? To which I say, I know, I know, we're all busy. But is that a good excuse? Is that a good excuse for a disciple to make to his or her master? I'm sorry, master, you're my master, but I don't have time for you. It doesn't make sense. And the truth is, we make ourselves busy. We are the ones who choose to fill up our schedules with the work and with the play that we deem is necessary for us. And then when we do all that, we're just so surprised. Wow, I don't have any time left for God. Well, it's because you use it on other things. On what you thought was necessary. But Jesus tells us one thing is necessary. So let's adjust our lives accordingly. Let's identify, let's limit, let's cut off even what is unnecessary or less necessary that's getting in the way of you and Christ. Let's get creative also. If you want to listen to the Bible or you want to read the Bible but you're finding a hard time, maybe you can listen to it while you drive or you do chores that don't require a lot of brain power. And let's help one another in this. If you're not sure how to read the Bible or where to start, well, talk with one of your elders or talk with another mature brother or sister in Christ. You say, hey, I see you've got a good Bible reading thing going. I'm having a lot of trouble. Can you help me? That's what God designed you to do. We're designed to minister to one another. Designed to help one another sit at the feet of Jesus. And if you can't seem to secure time away from your kids to meet with the Lord, well, ask a family member or a friend or someone in the church maybe to watch your kids for a little bit so that you can have your time with Jesus. Now, I know that this can be a particular challenge for moms, especially moms of newborns. I understand it's difficult. But to help those moms, and really to help all of us together, let's make it our ambition to set one another up for spiritual success. I feel like there's another sports analogy in there somewhere, like alley-oops or just the way a quarterback will throw, throw the ball to his receiver. There's a way you can set up the others in your family and the others in your church to better follow Christ, to better be that devoted disciple of Christ. Husbands, ask your wives how you can help them sit at the Lord's feet. And wives, do the same for your husbands. Ask them how you can help them pursue Christ. And children, do the same for your parents. Ask them how you can be a spiritual blessing to your parents. And parents, consider along with your children how you can be one to lead them to Christ, to hear Him and to see Him and to know Him. And of course, all you who are single or just friends with others in the church, you can do the same thing. That's what the, the Scriptures call us to do, to be encouraging exhorting one another as we see the day drawing near Christ's return. It can be really hard if you're all by yourself. We do know our our commitment should be indeed to still be devoted disciples of God. But if we can help one another in this, let's do that. Now, I should also clarify, lest we misunderstand, that reading the Bible is not the magic bullet that suddenly slays all your sins. You can regularly read or listen to the Bible, and even pray, and still live a sinful life. It's not some formula where you can just input hours of Bible reading or prayer and then you automatically output a certain level of holiness. It's not how it works. It is ultimately a relationship after all. Nevertheless, let me say this. I have not known one person leading a spiritually healthy and happy life who is not also regularly reading the scriptures and praying. Indeed, it's amazing to observe. Certainly, I can see this as a pastor, but just as a Christian, as I've grown up and as I've interacted in various settings with other Christians, it's amazing to observe the slow but perceptible transformation that often takes place for those who are devoted to feeding on Christ. They regularly read the Bible, they regularly pray. They regularly fellowship with other believers. They regularly listen to the preached word and pay attention to it. They do all the things that theologians sometimes call the means of grace. These different simple things that God has provided to us, called us to do as ways of just getting to know him. And you know what happens when when people do that? What tends to happen? They grow in greater and greater love for Christ. Christ. They grow in greater joy in Christ, in greater peace in Christ, and, and a greater desire to serve Christ. I'm not telling you today that we don't want you to serve. We do. The Lord calls you to serve. And boy, we always need more servants, people serving in the church. But we don't want it to come out from this mere duty mindset. Oh, here's a burdensome thing I've got to do because I'm a Christian when you're regularly feeding on the Lord, meeting with Him, when you're that devoted disciple, you want to serve. Not that there's no toil in it, but you want to because you want to do it as an act of grateful worship to your Lord. Isn't that what you want for yourselves? I don't want to just go through the motions. I want to to actually, sincerely serve the Lord. I think that's what we all want. And listen to the Lord's word today. Get back to basics. Happy service to Christ starts with, follows from, and is filled with devoted discipleship under Christ. That's the truth. So let's recommit ourselves to being really what we are. Devoted disciples to our Lord. Pray with me. My Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Just as you were so patient with Martha, you are so patient with us. Lord, we question your care. We get dragged away by a whole bunch of things, which some of them are good and some of them are just totally useless. But we neglect the most important thing. And yet you are patient. Even today, God, you are graciously calling us back via this word that you've given to us to sit at your feet. God, if there's any who have never done that fundamentally, they've never become your true disciple, they've just played games with you or they just live their own way, I pray that they'd repent and come to know you today as the Lord, as the Master. But Lord, for the rest of us who can so easily stray, bring us back. Bring us back to the fundamentals, God. The one thing necessary, which is to know you, learn more about you, love you, Do that for this church. And God, we know that we will be the ones who get the joy out of it. Because the source of all joy is you. You are the source of life. When we spend time with you, how could we not be blessed? Lord, help us to make the adjustments necessary for this, even if they're painful, even if they're costly, because one thing is necessary. In Jesus' name, amen.